Hello everyone and welcome to Autism Stories, where we connect you with amazing people who are helping autistic adults and teens become more successful. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Mahatma Gandhi said, A small body of determined spirits fired by an unquenchable faith in their mission can alter the course of history. That is the story that the documentary Crip Camp tells about the disability rights movement. On this episode of Autism Stories, we welcome back Haley Moss to talk about all things Crip Camp and why you should see this important film if you haven't already done so. If you would like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We'd also appreciate if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about autism stories. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Haley, thanks so much for returning to Autism Stories. Thank you so much for having me again. Now, uh, at the end of March, I, on the uh, first, I think it was the first day it was at least, either the first or the second day, I uh, put on Netflix and I watched Crip Camp. It just kind of enthralled me. I don't know, kind of like the excitement for me of seeing that film. And I needed to talk about the, the this documentary. And I, I was thinking about who can I talk with this documentary about? And you were one of the first people that popped in my mind. So thanks for uh, joining us today. Now, the beginning of the documentary, they start talking about Camp Jeanette. We learn about Camp Jeanette, a camp where teenagers could be teenagers without any stereotypes or, or labels. So I was wondering whether it was a camp or otherwise, what has been maybe your closest experience to something like this? Unlike the campers at Jeanette, I never got to go to sleepaway camp. I never had that experience. I didn't feel comfortable with my family. It was just a decision we chose to make. But I think the time where I thought that I could just be an autistic person with other autistic people has really come through advocacy. It's come with other people and things like that, too. So I've had that experience a couple times. The first time I got to be around other people and just had that experience was at the Austin Society of America when I was maybe, like, 13. But... I really do wish that I saw more experiences like that. And I know that a lot of people have experiences like Camp Genetics in the autism community with things like Autistic Campus Inclusion, which is run by the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. I saw something similar at Best Buddies Leadership Conference last year. And I know that places like Autspace and Autreat and different retreats and conferences of those natures kind of mimic that experience for people in the autism community, too. I loved when the uh, director of Camp Jeanette, Larry Allison, said that the problem wasn't with people with disabilities, the problem was people without disabilities. And he said it was our problem and it was important for us to change, uh, talking about the transformation of the, of the camp from a camp that just, I guess, for the general population ver 
versus people with disabilities. So how do you feel like in 2020 our society is doing about changing our attitudes? I think what's really interesting about what the camp director said is what we know that now is the social model of disability is that society is more disabling than the label itself, you know, mm. kind of that vibe of that things are more disabling based on what barriers are in a way that non-disabled people place. So I think Barry Allison was really getting at that social model of disability. So I think society is doing better by realizing that when we help the most marginalized in some way that it benefits everyone. And you see this a lot with things like the curve cut effect. So I think it helps make things better that everyone is realizing that, oh, it's not necessarily the disability itself that is the worst thing about having a disability, it's the way that we treat others and the problems that we have based on the expectations we set as non-disabled people and also just kind of the stereotypes and stigmas that we carry with us and project. We're introduced to uh, the amazing Judith Heumann, uh in the film when she, at the beginning when she was 23 years of age and was a counselor at Camp Jeanette. The, the first thing that struck me about this was that we had a disabled person in a position of instruction or leadership for the campers. How important do you think it is that disabled or neurodiverse people are in leadership positions? I think it's so important to see disabled leaders. So that's something especially when I consult with companies and I get to talk about autism at work that I really like to stress. It's like, hi, please put people with disabilities in leadership and not just into jobs, especially when you see retail, you never see SD cup managers or higher up in stores. So it's something I see at least in that in a professional setting that I wish I saw more. And I think seeing leaders, especially with Jeanette, is so, so powerful because a lot of the young people in the campers coming from special education programs or might not have seen as much as you saw that even with the different experiences the campers had. If you had people that lived at places like Willowbrook which were institutions, and then you had people that were in the basement in the special education program. And then for the first time, they were seeing disabled leaders at camp just being adults and being able to help other people. And you saw Judy taking things like, okay, what are we having for dinner? And even when there was the STI outbreak, that she was helping to wash people off. And you saw that was definitely that leadership, and you saw those normal things that we were talking about earlier, just people being people. So I think seeing that leadership is so important, especially for young people. And there, and there were two campers and throughout the film that I thought had many insightful comments, and, and they were Denise and Neil Jacobson. They, they met at Camp Jeanette and ended up getting married. Um, the film gets into other relationships that started at, at Camp Jeanette as well, and how there were makeout sessions behind the the bunks and all, and really like kind of the evolution of those relationships. So something like yeah. this, I think, was great to be included in the film because there are so many untrue myths about dating and the disabled community. Oh my God. So one of my favorite reviews that I saw of Crip Camp was written by an autistic journalist named Sarah Luderman. And Sarah saying one of the best parts of Crip Camp was that it was a lot more raucous and sexually explicit than we expected it to be. Mm. And I think what made it so interesting with that is it did show that disabled people are absolutely capable of having 
romantic relationships that we still have desire. And I remember there was a scene where Denise talked about how proud she was when she got tested at the hospital for gonorrhea yes. in later life. And, and at first I thought, I, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is in the documentary. And I ended up just laughing. I'm like, I get why she was so proud of herself is that people just didn't think someone with such a speech impediment and disability would be possible that, like it would be possible for her to have these relationships. And she just was so happy and such a, so human. So I think showing that dating and sex in the film was really important, especially for teenagers. I mean, teenagers especially are coming into having feelings of attraction and their sexuality and exploring that for the first time in a lot of instances. And disabled teens are no different. Yeah, and and I loved um, where um, Denise was talking about how she where she ended up getting her. I guess it was her was it her master's or PhD in sexual education. That mm-hmm. I, I think that it, I think that's so powerful. I mean, even twenty twenty right now, we are we have such a long way to go um, with sexual education and sexual education for neurodiverse people. Exactly, and it's not even just neurodiversity disability overall. So I PA'd a disability class when I was an undergrad, and there was an entire class about disability and sex. And the students had to write an essay based on the documentary they saw. And I remember some of the documentary participants we saw in that class were people in wheelchairs. And one of my students wrote an essay about how people in wheelchairs shouldn't have sex, and even though... You know, this person who was in the documentary was explaining how that works. I remember reading this essay, and I'm like, did you not pay attention in class? Like, like you just saw this documentary from just kept saying that he had a fulfilling life, that he had sexual attraction, just like any other person, and he had a fulfilling life in romantic and sexual life. And I was like, how are they not, like, this is ridiculous. So it was really interesting to see that entire thing evolve. And recently, uh, you... You've been writing so many different articles, so many great articles, by the way, and I try to read each each one. But one of the one of the articles that I that I read recently, and I shared with someone that I was, you know, supporting through the coaching of Autism Personal Coach, and this person just happens to have a law degree as well, um, and I was I was sharing his article, your article about uh, dating for people with uh, disabilities. So maybe talk a little bit about that article. That article was genuinely one of my favorite things I ever got to write, especially because the whole process of it, it was for GQ. And I really just wanted to talk about disclosure because I know it's really messy no matter who you are. Like, how does that even work in the age of dating apps and things? So for young people with disabilities now, I think disclosing is something that's really interesting, especially for neurodivergent people where it's not as a parent or people in wheelchairs or people who are death, for instance, like, how do you have that conversation? And for me, that really sparked because there was a HuffPost essay a couple years ago about a deaf woman who was talking about her relationship. She went on a date. She didn't mention she was deaf. She wasn't planning on mentioning it right away. And the guy, she ends up dating this guy. He ends up being her current partner in the article, but she ends up mentioning, like, I was disheartened a couple years later when he mentioned he already knew I was deaf before he met me because me up and I had and you know how in deaf people speak sometimes they have what sounds like a deaf accent so he already was prepared and knew without her disclosing and she talks about how she wished she could have known and had that conversation on her terms so when it comes to dating with a disability I think that's really important to think about disclosure how do we have those conversations especially with non-disabled partners 
I usually don't enjoy talking about dating in my personal life. It's just something that I like to keep as a boundary. But I think that there's a greater phenomenon when it comes to disclosure and writing about it meant a lot to me because my editor has has diabetes, so she had a personal connection to it. And every person that I got to interview and speak to about how to make this process a little bit less messy had a disability, and it wasn't necessarily just autism. So I got to speak to people were deaf, I got to speak to people who had diabetes, I got to speak to people who had things like alopecia, just all sorts of different experiences and how that shakes out for them. During Crip Camp, they, there was so much great footage of Camp Jeanette. That was one part of it that I was just mesmerized by. Um, one scene that they, they showed was what I guess what could only be considered uh, maybe a support group where the campers were talking about their parents and in some cases how they were overprotective. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe um, it didn't allow, how parents didn't allow them to have the freedom or give them the ability to experience some of the things they wanted to try. What would your advice be to parents in those situations? So something with Crip Camp that I really want to point out is there's a whole different historical context, and that's very apparent, especially in the second half of the film. So you have to remember when these kids are at camp, it's the 60s and 70s. And right. again, at that point, we don't have 504, we don't have the ADA, we don't even have IEA really. So we don't have any of the same things, and these parents are so fighting at a whole different level. And I think they're also afraid that these people are fighting just to even get into special education or into the public school system, which is something that you hear when they're talking in the interviews as well with the parents and the participants when they're growing up. It wasn't the parents because the parents weren't interviewed, but you saw the participants saying, like, my parents had to fight to even get me into the public school, or they weren't able to get me into the public school. So I really wanted to point that out, and I think that also plays into the overprotectiveness, especially during times where crib camp took place. So I really wanted to kind of give that as a note, but I do think that parents of children with disabilities generally are incredibly overprotective, and I understand why. It's a pretty harsh world, even though now, and as we come up to the 30th anniversary of the ADA in 2020, I think we still have to think about that. Is While now there's a lot more protection, it might not be enough, and I know we talked about this in our last podcast with Amy, but I think it's really interesting and for parents, I think it's that you can let your kids try try new things, and I think you can be supportive. But I think you also have to have those conversations to build those self-advocacy skills as well. So then you can determine if it's something that feels safe to try or whatnot. And I think Jeanette also showed how much people were capable of when they were around others like them, and they had somewhere to let that out. So I know sometimes parents don't want their kids to interact with other people with disabilities because they're afraid they might unlearn what they learned from the typical kids or the non-disabled kids. But there's a lot of different societal things at play, too, and that's also a whole other group of ableist things to unpack another day. But I think for parents, it's also trust yourself, trust your kids, and you're not wrong for not letting people try things either. I think it's that it's a very difficult and messy thing. Again, and I like to remind people this, I'm not a parent, so... I'm probably not the best person for parenting advice. I'm not a parent to a child. I'm not a parent to a dog. And I'm not a parent to a plant, let alone a succulent. So I'm probably not the best person for parenting advice. But that's kind of how I see it, is I try to look at it very objectively. And I see it through both history and also fear. 
the film uh, jumps to 1972, where Judith Human became the president of Disabled in Action, whose mission is to end discrimination for disabled people. Uh, they, their motto, they believe you know, strongly in the motto, nothing for us without us. Now, the world has changed so much since 1972, even so much since 2019. But uh, so how do you think uh, disabled people advocating for themselves has changed? I don't think it's changed. That's the scary thing. I think it's just gotten bigger because, again, we have a larger disabled population as a matter of scale. We have more people that are alive and as part of our population. We have people living longer, so people with acquired disabilities later in life. I think we have a bigger population, but I think advocating has only changed because of the Internet. So it's a lot easier to get connected. And that back then, again, a lot of people just met at Jeanette. We don't have... There are many forms of genetics currently right now. It doesn't mean necessarily a physical camp, but you might see it on Twitter, for instance. Mm-hmm. So I think people are able to get connected in a more accessible way, but I think people advocating for themselves continues to happen, and it's continuing to keep that nothing about us without us mentality and keep fighting against discrimination of disabled people because it still happens to this day in 2020. Now, one of the campers at Jeanette, Steve Hoffman, said something that I thought was interesting that in that if you are a disabled person and have a passive nature about yourself, you're, you are screwed. How much truth do you find in, in that statement? So I'm one of those people that really doesn't like conflict. And I realize that the longer you stay silent or if you're an introvert at heart, you kind of have to overcome that to an extent because you are screwed if you don't speak up for yourself and if you let others speak for you or if you don't even advocate for your own needs. So you kind of have to be aggressive in that regard, even though it feels very uncomfortable sometimes to be like, I don't feel comfortable asking for more. I don't feel comfortable asking for an accommodation. You have to kind of get past that because otherwise no one else will do it for you and you will just be left behind. And it's really difficult to have to assert yourself as a full person and to show that you are confident that you have to work that much harder sometimes. So there is a truth to it, and it really is sad. I wish it wasn't that way, but it is really difficult, especially for me, who is more introverted, and I do think about that. And even my mom, when I was growing up, it was always use your words, ask if you, asking you overseas, use your words, because I hated asking for things. And I was very passive about that stuff, and I wanted that extra help, and it was very difficult. And I needed to be empowered and also have, be able to take charge and do it for myself, too. So if you are passive, you kind of are in this situation, especially in advocacy, I think you have to be unafraid to be aggressive and loud and say what you want and what you need. One of my friends jokes about it as being just that disabled people are always angry. And he, he'll be like, we're pissed off disabled people. And I'll be like, you know, that makes sense that we're pissed off disabled people. And he'll say that I taught him how to be a pissed off disabled person. And I'm like, I wouldn't say that I'm angry. It's just that you have to be strong in your fight for it and yeah if you look at it maybe we are angry and aggressive because the world is so harsh towards people with disabilities they either pity us they don't want us or they just see us as less and we have to fight that much harder to be seen as full and then we get by saying we want equality we're seen as angry so i feel like you can't really win either way sometimes and it seems a lot a lot of the times that maybe maybe some of the anger comes from just the world not actually just listening. Mm-hmm. That too, is that you talk and you scream about these things and nobody listens, then all of a sudden 
somebody does and it's like we've been saying this for years like even with this whole remote work thing people with disabilities have been advocating for remote work as an option for years because of things like chronic pain or inaccessibility or whatever the reason might be and we were always told it was too much or it was an unreasonable accommodation and here we are where everything is now remote and then you get angry of like we've been pushing for this for so long and that's when you see the ableism baked in you get really upset about that and there's a lot of really wonderful articles I've read on that subject, and I would be happy to pass those along if you want to learn more about ableism at work and things that people with disabilities have been pushing for for a long time and advocating for, being told no or not listening when we say it, and then doing it later on, and then we're sitting there like, that wasn't even difficult. You did it because you're afraid of getting sick, not because it would have actually benefited everybody. Now, you were talking a little bit earlier about, like, be, being empowered. Like, what were some of the things where you went from someone that maybe didn't like conflict to being a stronger advocate for yourself and others? <laughs> I still don't like conflict. Like, I tell this story a lot about even being a litigator. Is I remember one of, my, one of the last clients that I, worked, that I worked with was in a business dispute. And I'm like, can they just mediate and get along? And my boss was like, they're suing because they can't get along. And I was like... But it would be so much easier if we just sat them down and talked this through because I didn't think it was I'm like because lit, litigation is a big conflict, right? Like that's what litigation is. So that's literally how I feel when I talk about passive or not liking conflicts. But I think how I choose to advocate is I like to bring knowledge and power and also in, in empower people through education. So I try to take that kind of nonpartisan plant, even though obviously neurodiversity is very polarized, but. I think that the way that I choose to advocate is say, here's the facts, here's what's going on, take it really, obviously I support this, but here's the things that are really important for you to know, make your own decisions. So I try to empower people to make those decisions and also just to learn more because I like to take an education-based approach to advocacy rather than just screaming that something is wrong, something needs to be better. I think being able to illustrate it with humanity and education and knowledge makes people feel that they're in control of what they want to advocate for. And if in knowledge and power, and then they can use that power to make actionable change. So a lot of people talk about disability, especially disability policy, in terms of politics, right? Like, it's very democratic, it's progressive, it's this, it's that, but disability politics wasn't always that way. And we're going to talk more about the ADA and 504 later, I'm sure, but those were bipartisan efforts. Those were not, and even the different administrations that, were being criticized throughout the movie were not all one political party either. No. So I think at this point, it's bringing it back to a bipartisan or nonpartisan issue. One of the m most important people in this movie, and she didn't have, she she wasn't a big part of the movie, but I thought it, it really she really spoke to me was Holly Holland DeLille. I'm sure I'm butchering her name, but um, she was someone who didn't have a disability and then she had an accident and that, that left her paraplegic. So essentially, whether at birth or at any point in our lives, anyone can have a disability. Therefore, is it taking too much of a leap that Crip Camp is about the civil rights of all Americans? I don't think that's a big leap at all because, again, when one of us moves up, we all move up. And people with disabilities are often some of the most marginalized people especially when you start intersecting other identities with it. And you think about poverty, like disabled people are often in poverty or they're unemployed and that gets compounded 
further when you add multiple levels of marginalization. So when you have disabled people of color or queer disabled people that are being multiply marginalized, of course that they have other issues too when it comes to civil rights. So I think when you put it all together, you do it is ultimately about everyone. So if disabled people are moving up, then everybody's moving up at the same time. So that's kind of an the intersectional approach. And I think what you pointed out with Holland was really important too, because disability is the only minority group you can join at any point in your life. But disability impacts one in four people actually having a disability. But when you think of people who are related to people with disabilities or are caretakers or know someone, that number grows a lot larger. So I think it really is about anybody. And again, realizing that disability is the only minority that, that you can join at any point in your life is really, really important, just like Holland did when she had that accident that left her a paraplegic. The film then kind of shifts to uh, 1977, where there were national demonstrations starting to happen due to Section 504 of the Vocational Rehab Act of 1972 not being enforced and schools and hospitals were trying to find ways to not give accommodations to disabled people because they didn't want to spend the money. Therefore, in San Francisco, Judith Human led a, an amazing 24-day sit-in, which included a hunger strike that led to regulations being implemented for this enforcement. It really showed the power um, and really dispelled, I think, a lot of the myths about disabled people. Absolutely. And something else I thought that was really interesting about San Francisco as well was the involvement of the Black Panther Party. Yes. I found that to be very interesting to show. It goes again to how this is a very intersectional issue and that people that are marginalized will band together to try to get the right thing done and convince people in power to do the right thing and be on the right side of history. I, I thought that was amazing. That was something I didn't know. Someone that was seemed to be a great ally during the demonstrations was uh, Evan White, who was mm-hmm. essentially the only reporter um, throughout the entire demonstration to give coverage to the sit-in and was allowed to um, eventually sit in on the strategy sessions uh, that Judith Human and everyone there um, conducted every day. What, what do you see as the value of allies to autistic and neurodiverse people? So first off with Evan White, what I think is really great is, again, that there are reporters and members of the community who are covering disability issues. And we're seeing that more right now and not just people like me who like to freelance and write an article once in a while, but people who are making disability a legitimate beat in coverage. So if you haven't read their coverage, again, I mentioned Sarah Luderman earlier. She does a wonderful job writing about disability policy. And at The Hill, Zach Budrick does a wonderful job covering disability and disability-related issues in the news and politics on a regular basis. So we're seeing a lot more in that. And both those journalists that I mentioned happen to be autistic. So the fact that they're covering it is really meaningful and it's done correctly. And they're able to lead the way, especially because disabled sources and people trust them just like the people who are doing the demonstration trusted Evan White and he was allowed to sit in. I think it's a lot different now when we see disabled media members getting that same access to now. But for allies in general, I think that the media can be huge allies as we've seen. And I think for allies, if we don't have allies, then we're just talking amongst ourselves and we're in an echo chamber. So I think it's really important when it comes to civil rights of people with disabilities and 
for helping bring neurodiversity into all aspects of society as well, that if we're just talking amongst ourselves as professionals and parents and people with lived experiences, that's great, but it's not going to get off the ground the way that it would if someone who has no connection whatsoever suddenly hears this and thinks, oh my God, I can do something about this. Like someone who's in a position at a company has like, oh my God, I don't know any autistic people. I don't know anyone who is neurodivergent, but I see the value and this is really important. And why aren't we doing better? So when we have allies, especially ones who don't have ties, it's really, really crucial that they're in this fight alongside us and that we're getting that push to inclusion because we're not all just in it alone. The 504 regulations that came about uh, weren't enough because businesses that didn't get federal funding could still discriminate against you, which led to mm-hmm. the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. So the last mm-hmm. time you were on Autism Stories, we discussed the ADA. Mm-hmm. And Denise Jacobson said this was really is just the tip of the iceberg, the passage of the ADA. Where do you see us as a country uh, needing to go to continue to get where we need to be as a society? Oh my, I think there's a lot that needs to be done. And even with the ADA, like we talked about last time, some of the biggest loopholes are that, especially in employment, that the big thing is that it's for businesses with 15 or more people, and there are also religious exemptions with the ADA, so that churches and places of worship tend to be exempt. So I think that closing some of the loopholes in the ADA and also moving it forward to match the current climate of how society is working. So what's been getting going through the courts for a couple of years now, at least a couple of years, has been web accessibility. So I'd love to see some of those brought up in legislation. Again, I think that even with the pandemic, we're seeing different civil rights issues when it comes to disability and deciding who's essential, who can live, who deserves this, who deserves that. We have all these different issues. And ultimately, I think we need to keep doing this thing that Chris Camp did a really wonderful job illustrating, is that people with disabilities are people. I know that sounds like common sense, at least to us, but Mm -hmm. I think reminding people of our humanity is something that's incredibly important, and not just this idea, and I think it's referred to in theory sometimes as this idea of useless eaters, of people that are just taking up space and resources and all that. That's complete BS. I don't know how else to say it in a nicer way, but we are people that we deserve the same civil rights and human rights as anybody else. So I think that's what we need to do. And I think to keep getting there is more education, more advocacy. And and advocacy means a lot of different things. It means legislation, it means policy, it means litigation, it means sit-ins like we saw in Crip Camp, that it's a lot of different things, or even just having access to resources and places and spaces like Camp Jeanette. I can't begin to tell you how inspired I was about Judith Human throughout the entire documentary. What were your thoughts about watching her throughout the film? So I always feel really awkward calling people with disabilities inspiration, but Judy Human is genuinely an inspiration. She is, and even just the way that she has so much respect from other people with disabilities that they were more afraid of her than the cops that she was able to organize people, she was able to make people feel seen and heard and respected as people when she was a counselor at camp, and just seeing how she continued to advise policy and to work with different people in government and across disability communities for so long is so important. She is truly the OG of disability rights and still continues to be. 
she's been on national television, she's been everywhere, and I really need to pick up her new memoir that she wrote, a memoir that came out earlier this year. I really need to pick that up and read that because I want to see more of it through her perspective rather than just how it was framed in the documentary, even though I think the documentary did a wonderful job, especially because it was directed by someone who was Edgenet Camper himself. And with all the archival footage, I think it was so beautifully done. But I really want to see more of it from Judy's perspective, and I seriously think she, she is one of my heroes, and I admire her. And if you haven't seen it and you want kind of a more of a crash course as well, if you want a nice compliment to Chris Camp, there, there was an episode of Drunk History from Comedy Central that did the version of the 504 sit-ins and Judy Human. And the actress that played Judy Human in Drunk History was Allie Stroker, who won the Tony Award a couple of years ago while in her wheelchair for win for disabled actresses. So it was just really awesome, and I want to learn as much as possible as well, and I, I really do need to pick up a memoir, and I'm probably going to order that while we're done talking. You mentioned earlier about Michelle and Barack Obama being involved in this project. They were the executive producers for Crip Camp, and they won, mm-hmm. uh, I believe last year, won an Academy Award for another documentary that they produced. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering with their backing um, and the po- about the possibility of Crip Camp being nominated for and possibly winning the Academy Award for Best Documentary, what, what do you see that as meaning for the disability community and maybe uh, pushing forward with more change in this country? Oh, my God. If Crip Camp was nominated for anything in the award space, I think it would be incredible and it's very well-deserved. I think what's important as well when we talk about disability in media is we don't see enough of our stories being told, especially by people like us. And that's what Jim LeBrecht, I think, did a very wonderful job of this movie was, is that it was told by disabled people that the only non-disabled interviewee was that one camp counselor that you mentioned that was saying that's a problem for people without disabilities. So... I think it would be very monumental to see this win anything. I hope that it means that we're going to start teaching disability history because I feel like disability history is something that we've heard about because we're in the space. But it's something that I've ever learned in, like, when I took U.S. history in high school. It's something that my friends who took history in college learned anything about. But it's something I wish got more attention. And even for me, there's a lot of stuff I was learning for the first time through Crip Camp, and I was upset that it was the first time I was learning about this stuff. Mm. So I hope it means that we have a broader education that disability history is history, too. Because we talk about women's history, we talk about black history, we talk about all sorts of other marginalized forms of history. And I wish that disability history was there, especially because in the scheme of things, we were the last ones to get any civil rights. Along with, And we even hear about things like Stonewall and the LGBT community as part of history. Like, come on, disability mm-hmm. deserves this history to be told and shared on a greater scale. So I think an award can do a lot for that. I think when movies and films and TV shows are made again if they went, can't win something. So hopefully we'll see more disability in fiction being better represented on TV and in movies. It's getting a lot better in fiction and books. I got to write about that for We Need Diverse Books recently as well. I talked to a lot of authentic authors about literature and what's going on in kids lit especially. So things are looking good on representation of that end. I think this documentary will open the door to a lot of new documentaries. I think it will open the door to a lot of fiction about disability as well. And I'm really excited to see what happens next in the 
cultural space regarding disability. Where do you see, like, with TV and films, the the portrayal of of females with disabilities at now in 2020? We need, I think we need more. So, did you see Everything's Gonna Be Okay on Freeform? I've seen a little bit of it, yes. I made it through about half the show so far. I've been meaning to finish it. Kayla Cromer, the actress who plays the mm-hmm. teenager on the spectrum, yeah. she's wonderful. I've spoken to Kayla a couple of times. She's absolutely fabulous. And I think that the show does a really good job at portraying autism because Kayla brings such authenticity to the role. So I hope to see more shows like that. And I think it's sad that it took so long to get a character like Kayla, like the one Kayla plays on TV. And I believe her name was Matilda. And I want to see more characters like Matilda. So I'd love to see some adults. I'd also love to see women of color. I would just love to see more experiences. So then we have more diversity in the autistic characters we get. And I'd also love to see more actors with disabilities getting roles. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Did you ever see the TV show was called The Bridge? I did not. Yeah, Yeah, I believe it was it was a an autistic female, I guess she was maybe a detective. It's been a, it's been a long time since I saw the show, but yeah, that was, that was from several years ago. And I just always, it seems like there's, it's just like few and far between and we need a lot more representation. I'm wondering if I'm, I feel like I'm not sure, but I'm not a hundred percent, but I think someone I knew on the bridge might've consulted to that. Not a hundred percent sure. Well, I, I was glad to hear you um, talk about, learning some things from Crip Cramp because I, I, part of my, uh, the, the feelings that I had during the movie was that I was embarrassed that I didn't know some of, of the, of the things, you know, know more about the history. Either. And a lot of the things that I've known to other people who are very embedded in disability rights said that they didn't realize is just how typical of an experience Jeanette was, that it really was teenagers being teenagers. Like they've heard about Jeanette, but they didn't realize until they saw the footage of every day of how much regular life stuff was going on, or that they didn't realize that campers were able to come from places like Willowbrook, which were institutions that people lived in, and that we're obviously now we don't have institutions the same way we did with Willowbrook, but we've all heard about Willowbrook at some point, and realizing that campers were coming from places like that too, and they had to escape from that life where they were otherwise fed for maybe three minutes a day or whatever obscene thing that we saw in terms of the representation at Willowbrook. There's little things in Crip Camp that I know on a second watch I'll be even more mindful of too. But those are things that I know people that are very embedded in the space didn't know anything about either. So I think no matter how well-versed or not well-versed you are in disability history, you will definitely learn something from Crip Camp. Absolutely. Well, Haley, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks so much for... Uh, returning to Autism Stories, and thanks so much for engaging me in this conversation. I think it was really important. Me too. Thank you for letting me be a nerd about it. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and thank you so much, Haley, as it's always a fun and insightful conversation. I always leave our conversations learning something and feeling energized, and I hope that is the feeling all of you felt after listening to today's episode. Modern life is challenging for anyone right now. However, when you're autistic, the world isn't designed with your unique traits in mind and everyday demands can feel insurmountable. At Autism Personal Coach, 
we celebrate neurodiversity by empowering adults and teens to be the best version of their authentic selves. The people we serve are the real experts. We're here to help make your goals a reality. On next week's episode of Autism Stories, we will talk about the positive benefits of poetry for autistic people with Joshua Corwin. Talk to you then.